Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 3, Chapter 50 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. On the Olive Mount. Winter, a bad guest, sitteth with me at home. Blue are my hands with his friendly handshaking. I honor him, that bad guest, but gladly leave him alone. Gladly do I run away from him, and when one runneth well, then one escapeth him. With warm feet and warm thoughts do I run where the wind is calm, to the sunny corner of mine olive mount. There do I laugh at my stern guest, and am still fond of him, because he cleareth my house of flies, and quieteth many little noises. For he suffereth it not if a gnat wanteth to buzz, or even two of them. Also the lanes maketh he lonesome, so that the moonlight is afraid there at night. A hard guest is he. But I honor him, and do not worship, like the tenderlings, the pot-bellied fire-idol. Better even a little teeth-chattering than idle adoration. So willeth my nature. And especially have I a grudge against all ardent, steaming, steamy fire-idols. Him whom I love, I love better in winter than in summer. Better do I now mock at mine enemies, and more heartily when winter sitteth in my house. Heartily, verily, even when I creep into bed, there still laugheth and wantoneth my hidden happiness, even my deceptive dream laugheth. I, a creeper, never in my life did I creep before the powerful, and if ever I lied, then did I lie out of love. Therefore am I glad even in my winter bed. A poor bed warmeth me more than a rich one, for I am jealous of my poverty. And in winter she is most faithful unto me. With a wickedness do I begin every day. I mock at the winter with a cold bath, on that account grumbleth my stern housemate. Also do I like to tickle him with a wax taper, that he may finally let the heavens emerge from ashy grey twilight. For especially wicked am I in the morning, at the early hour when the pail rattleth at the well, and horses neigh warmly in grey lanes. Impatiently do I then wait, that the clear sky may finally dawn for me, the snow-bearded winter sky, the hoary one, the white head. The winter sky, the silent winter sky, which often stifleth even its sun. Did I perhaps learn from it the long, clear silence? Or did it learn it from me? Or hath each of us devised it himself? 
of all good things the origin is a thousandfold all good roguish things spring into existence for joy how could they always do so for once only a good roguish thing is also the long silence and to look like the winter sky out of a clear round-eyed countenance like it to stifle one's sun and one's inflexible solar will verily this art and this winter roguishness have i learnt well my best-loved wickedness in art is it that my silence hath learned not to betray itself by silence clattering with diction and dice i outwit the solemn assistance all those stern watchers shall my will and purpose elude that no one might see down into my depth and into mine ultimate will for that purpose did i devise the long clear silence many a shrewd one did i find he veiled his countenance and made his water muddy so that no one might see there through and there under but precisely unto him came the shrewder distrusters and nutcrackers precisely from him did they fish his best concealed fish but the clear the honest the transparent these are for me the wisest silent ones in them so profound is the depth that even the clearest water doth not betray it thou snow-bearded silent winter sky thou round-eyed white head above me oh thou heavenly simile of my soul and its wantonness and must i not conceal myself like one who hath swallowed gold lest my soul should be ripped up must i not wear stilts that they may overlook my long legs all those enviers and injurers around me those dingy fire-warmed used-up green-tinted ill-natured souls how could their envy endure my happiness thus do i show them only the ice and winter of my peaks and not that my mountain windeth all the solar girdles around it they hear only the whistling of my winter storms and know not that i also travel over warm seas like longing heavy hot south winds they commiserate also my accidents and chances but my word saith suffer the chance to come unto me innocent is it as a little child how could they endure my happiness if i did not put around it accidents and winter privations and bearskin caps and enmantling snowflakes if i did not myself commiserate their pity the pity of those enviers and injurers if i did not myself sigh before them and chatter with cold and patiently let myself be swathed in their pity this is the wise waggish will and good will of my soul that it concealeth not its winters and glacial storms 
it concealeth not its chillblains either to one man lonesomeness is the flight of the sick one to another it is the flight from the sick ones let them hear me chattering and sighing with winter cold all those poor squinting knaves around me with such sighing and chattering do i flee from their heated rooms let them sympathize with me and sigh with me on account of my chillblains at the ice of knowledge will he yet freeze to death so they mourn meanwhile do I run with warm feet hither and thither on mine olive mount? In the sunny corner of mine olive mount do I sing and mock at all pity. Thus sang Zarathustra. End of part three, chapter fifty. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part three, chapter fifty one of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On passing by. Thus, slowly wandering through many peoples and diverse cities, did Zarathustra return by roundabout roads to his mountains and his cave. And behold, thereby came he unawares also to the gate of the great city here however a foaming fool with extended hands sprang forward to him and stood in his way it was the same fool whom the people called the ape of zarathustra for he had learned from him something of the expression and modulation of language and perhaps liked also to borrow from the store of his wisdom and the fool talked thus to zarathustra oh zarathustra here is the great city. Here hast thou nothing to seek and everything to lose. Why wouldst thou wade through this mire? Have pity upon thy foot. Spit, rather, on the gate of the city, and turn back. Here is the hell for anchorite's thoughts. Here are great thoughts, seethed alive and boiled small. Here do all great sentiments decay. Here may only rattle-bone sensations rattle. Smellest thou not already the shambles and cook-shops of the spirit? Steameth not this city with the fumes of slaughtered spirit? Seest thou not the souls hanging like limp, dirty rags? And they make newspapers also out of these rags. Hearest thou not how spirit hath here become a verbal game? loathsome verbal swill doth it vomit forth then they make newspapers also out of this verbal swill they hound one another and know not whither they inflame one another and know not why they tinkle with their pinchbeck they jingle with their gold they are cold and seek warmth from distilled waters they are inflamed and seek coolness from frozen spirits. They are all sick and sore through public opinion. All lusts and vices are here at home, but here there are also the virtuous. 
there is much appointable appointed virtue much appointable virtue with scribe fingers and hardy sitting flesh and waiting flesh blessed with small breast stars and padded haunchless daughters there is here also much piety and much faithful spittle-licking and spittle-backing before the god of hosts from on high drippeth the star and the gracious spittle for the high longeth every starless bosom the moon hath its court and the court hath its moon-calves unto all however that cometh from the court do the mendicant people pray and all appointable mendicant virtues i serve thou servest we serve so prayeth all appointable virtue to the prince that the merited star may at last stick on the slender breast but the moon still revolveth around all that is earthly so revolveth also the prince around what is earthliest of all that however is the gold of the shopmen the god of the hosts of war is not the god of the golden bar the prince proposeth but the shopman disposeth by all that is luminous and strong and good in thee o zarathustra spit on this city of shopmen and return back here floweth all blood putridly and tepidly and frothily through all veins spit on the great city which is the great slum where all the scum frotheth together spit on the city of compressed souls and slender breasts of pointed eyes and sticky fingers on the city of the obtrusive the brazen-faced the pen demagogues and tongue demagogues the overheated ambitious where everything maimed ill-famed lustful untrustful over mellow sickly yellow and seditious festereth pernicious spit on the great city and turn back here however did zarathustra interrupt the foaming fool and shut his mouth stop this at once called out zarathustra long have thy speech and thy species disgusted me why didst thou live so long by the swamp that thou thyself hast to become a frog and a toad floweth there not a tainted frothy swamp blood in thine own veins when thou hast thus learned to croak and revile why wentest thou not into the forest or why didst thou not till the ground is the sea not full of green islands i despise thy contempt and when thou warnest me why didst thou not warn thyself out of love alone shall my contempt and my warning bird take wind but not out of the swamp they call thee mine ape thou foaming fool but i call thee my grunting pig by thy grunting thou spoilest even my praise of folly what was it that first made thee grunt because no one sufficiently flattered thee 
Therefore didst thou seat thyself beside this filth, that thou mightest have cause for much grunting, that thou mightest have cause for much vengeance. For vengeance, thou vain fool, is all thy foaming. I have divined thee well. But thy fool's word injureth me, even when thou art right. And even if Zarathustra's word were a hundred times justified, thou wouldst ever do wrong with my word. Thus spake Zarathustra. Then did he look on the great city and sighed, and was long silent. At last he spake thus. I loathe also this great city, and not only this fool. Here and there, there is nothing to better, nothing to worsen. Woe to this great city, and I would that I already saw the pillar of fire in which it will be consumed. For such pillars of fire must precede the great noontide. But this hath its time and its own fate. This precept, however, give I unto thee in parting, thou fool. Where one can no longer love, there should one pass by. Thus spake Zarathustra, and passed by the fool and the great city. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici here we find Nietzsche confronted with his extreme opposite, with him, therefore, for whom he is most frequently mistaken by the unwary. Zarathustra's ape, he is called in the discourse. He is one of those at whose hands Nietzsche had to suffer most during his lifetime, and at whose hands his philosophy has suffered most since his death. In this respect, it may seem a little trivial to speak of extremes meeting, but it is wonderfully apt. Many have adopted Nietzsche's mannerisms and word coinages, who had nothing in common with him beyond the ideas and business they plagiarized. But the superficial observer and a large portion of the public, not knowing of these things, not knowing, perhaps, that there are iconoclasts who destroy out of love and are therefore creators, and that there are others who destroy out of resentment and revengefulness and who are therefore revolutionists and anarchists, are prone to confound the two to the detriment of the nobler type. If we now read what the fool says to Zarathustra and note the tricks of speech he has borrowed from him, if we carefully follow the attitude he assumes, we shall understand why Zarathustra finally interrupts him. Quote, Stop this at once, Zarathustra cries. Long have thy speech and thy species disgusted me. Out of love alone shall my contempt and my warning bird take wind, but not out of the swamp. End quote. It were well if this discourse were taken to heart by all those who are too ready to associate Nietzsche with lesser and noisier men, with mountebanks and mummers. End of Part 3, Chapter 51 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia
Part 3, Chapter 52 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Apostates 1. Ah, lieth everything already withered and grey, which but lately stood green and many-hued on this meadow. And how much honey of hope did I carry hence into my beehives? Those young hearts have already become old, and not old even, only weary, ordinary, comfortable. They declare it, we have again become pious. Of late did I see them run forth at early morn with valorous steps, but the feet of their knowledge became weary, and now do they malign even their morning valor. Verily, many of them once lifted their legs like the dancer. To them winked the laughter of my wisdom. Then did they bethink themselves. Just now have I seen them bent down to creep to the cross. Around light and liberty did they once flutter like gnats and young poets. A little older, a little colder, and already are they mystifiers and mumblers and mollycoddles. Did perhaps their hearts despond, because lonesomeness had swallowed me like a whale? Did their ear perhaps hearken yearningly long for me in vain? and for my trumpet notes and herald calls. Ah, ever are there but few of those whose hearts have persistent courage and exuberance, and in such remaineth also the spirit patient. The rest, however, are cowardly. The rest. These are always the great majority, the commonplace, the superfluous, the far too many. Those all are cowardly. Him who was of my type will also the experiences of my type meet on the way, so that his first companions must be corpses and buffoons. His second companions, however, they will call themselves his believers will be a living host with much love, much folly, much unbearded veneration. To those believers shall he who is of my type among men not bind his heart. In those springtimes in many-hued meadows shall he not believe who knoweth the fickly faint-hearted human species. Could they do otherwise, then would they also will otherwise, the half and half spoil every whole. That leaves become withered? What is there to lament about that? Let them go and fall away, O Zarathustra, and do not lament. Better even to blow amongst them with rustling winds. Blow amongst those leaves, O Zarathustra, that everything withered may run away from thee the faster. Two. We have again become pious. So do those apostates confess. 
and some of them are still too pusillanimous thus to confess. Unto them I look into the eye. Before them I say it unto their face, and unto the blush on their cheeks. Ye are those who again pray. It is, however, a shame to pray. Not for all, but for thee, and me, and whoever hath his conscience in his head. For thee it is a shame to pray. Thou knowest it well. The faint-hearted devil in thee, which would fain fold its arms and place its hands in its bosom and take it easier, this faint-hearted devil persuadeth thee that there is a God. Thereby, however, dost thou belong to the light-dreading type, to whom light never permitteth repose, now must thou daily thrust thy head deeper into obscurity and vapour. And verily, thou choosest the hour well, for just now do the nocturnal birds again fly abroad. The hour hath come for all light-dreading people, the vesper hour and leisure hour when they do not take leisure. I hear it and smell it, it hath come, their hour for hunt and procession, not indeed for a wild hunt, but for a tame, lame, snuffling, soft treaders, soft prayers hunt, for a hunt after susceptible simpletons, all mouse-traps for the heart have again been set, and whenever I lift a curtain, a night-moth rushes out of it. Did it perhaps squat there along with another night-moth? For everywhere do I smell small, concealed communities, and wherever there are closets, there are new devotees therein, and the atmosphere of devotees. They sit for long evenings beside one another and say, Let us again become like little children and say, Good God! ruined in mouths and stomachs by the pious confectioners. Or they look for long evenings at a crafty, lurking cross-spider that preacheth prudence to the spiders themselves and teacheth that under crosses it is good for cobweb-spinning. Or they sit all day at swamps with angle-rods and on that account think themselves profound. But whoever fisheth where there are no fish, I do not even call him superficial. Or they learn in godly gay style to play the harp with a hymn-poet, who would fain harp himself into the heart of young girls, for he hath tired of old girls and their praises. Or they learn to shudder with a learned semi-madcap, who waiteth in darkened rooms for spirits to come to him and the spirit runneth away entirely. Or they listen to an old roving howl and growl piper, who hath learnt from the sad winds the sadness of sounds, now pipeth he as the wind, and preacheth sadness in sad strains. And some of them have even become night watchmen. They know now how to blow horns and go about at night, 
and awaken old things which have long fallen asleep. Five words about old things did I hear yesternight at the garden wall. They came from such old, sorrowful, arid night watchmen. For father he careth not sufficiently for his children. Human fathers do this better. He is too old. He now careth no more for his children, answered the other night watchman. Hath he then children? No one can prove it unless he himself prove it. I have long wished that he would for once prove it thoroughly. Prove? As if he had ever proved anything. Proving is difficult to him. He layeth great stress on one's believing him. Ay, ay, belief saveth him, belief in him. That is the way with old people. So it is with us also. Thus spake to each other the two old night watchmen and light scarers, and tooted thereupon sorrowfully on their horns. So did it happen yesternight at the garden wall. To me, however, did the heart writhe with laughter and was like to break. It knew not where to go and sunk into the midriff. Verily it will be my death yet, to choke with laughter when I see asses drunken, and hear night watchmen thus doubt about God. Hath the time not long since passed for all such doubts? Who may nowadays awaken such old slumbering, light-shunning things? With the old deities hath it long since come to an end. And verily, a good, joyful deity end had they. They did not begloom themselves to death. That do people fabricate. On the contrary, they laughed themselves to death once on a time. That took place when the ungodliest utterance came from a god himself the utterance there is but one god thou shalt have no other gods before me an old grim beard of a god a jealous one forgot himself in such wise and all the gods then laughed and shook upon their thrones and exclaimed is it not just divinity that there are gods but no god he that hath an ear, let him hear. Thus talked Zarathustra in the city he loved, which is surnamed the Pied Cow. For from here he had but two days to travel to reach once more his cave and his animals. His soul, however, rejoiced unceasingly on account of the nighness of his return home. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici it is clear that this applies to all those breathless and hasty tasters of everything who plunge too rashly into the sea of independent thought and heresy, and who, having miscalculated their strength, find it impossible to keep their head above water. Quote, a little older, a little colder, end quote, says Nietzsche. 
they soon clamber back to the conventions of the age they intended reforming. The French then say, La diable se fait hermite. But these men, as a rule, have never been devils, neither do they become angels. For, in order to be really good or evil, some strength and deep breathing is required. Those who are more interested in supporting orthodoxy than in being over-nice concerning the kind of support they give it, often refer to these people as evidence in favor of the true faith. End of Part 3, Chapter 52 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 3, Chapter 53 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return Home O oh, lonesomeness! My home, lonesomeness. Too long have I lived wildly in wild remoteness to return to thee without tears. Now threaten me with the finger as mothers threaten. Now smile upon me as mothers smile. Now say just, who was it that like a whirlwind once rushed away from me? Who, when departing, called out, too long have I sat with lonesomeness, there have I unlearned silence. That hast thou learned now, surely. O Zarathustra, everything do I know, and that thou wert more forsaken amongst the many, thou unique one, than thou ever wert with me. One thing is forsakenness. Another matter is lonesomeness. That hast thou now learned. And that amongst men thou wilt ever be wild and strange. Wild and strange, even when they love thee. For above all, they want to be treated indulgently. Here, however, art thou at home and house with thyself. Here canst thou utter everything, and unbosom all motives. Nothing is here ashamed of concealed, congealed feelings. Here do all things come caressingly to thy talk, and flatter thee, for they want to ride upon thy back. On every simile dost thou here ride to every truth. Uprightly and openly mayest thou here talk to all things, and verily it soundeth as praise in their ears for one to talk to all things directly. Another matter, however, is forsakenness. For, dost thou remember, O Zarathustra, when thy bird screamed overhead, when thou stoodest in the forest, irresolute, ignorant where to go, beside a corpse. When thou spakest, let mine animals lead me. More dangerous have I found it among men than among animals. That was forsakenness. And dost thou remember, O Zarathustra, when thou sattest in thine isle, a well of wine giving and granting amongst empty buckets, 
bestowing and distributing amongst the thirsty, until at last thou alone sattest thirsty amongst the drunken ones, and wailest nightly. Is taking not more blessed than giving, and stealing yet more blessed than taking? That was forsakenness. And dost thou remember, O Zarathustra, when thy stillest hour came and drove thee forth from thyself, when with wicked whispering it said, Speak and succumb? when it disgusted thee with all thy waiting and silence, and discouraged thy humble courage, that was forsakenness. Oh, lonesomeness! My home, lonesomeness! How blessedly and tenderly speaketh thy voice unto me! We do not question each other. We do not complain to each other. We go together openly through open doors, for all is open with thee and clear, and even the hours run here on lighter feet. For in the dark time weigheth heavier upon one than in the light. Here fly open unto me all beings, words, and word-cabinets. Here all being wanteth to become words. Here all becoming wanteth to learn of me how to talk. Down there, however, all talking is in vain. There, forgetting and passing by, are the best wisdom. That have I learned now. He who would understand everything in man must handle everything. But for that I have two clean hands. I do not like even to inhale their breath. Alas, that I have lived so long among their noise and bad breaths. Oh, blessed stillness around me. Oh, pure odors around me. How from a deep breast this stillness fetcheth pure breath. How it hearkeneth this blessed stillness. But down there, there speaketh everything, there is everything misheard. If one announce one's wisdom with bells, the shopmen in the market-place will out-jingle it with pennies. Everything among them talketh, no one knoweth any longer how to understand. Everything falleth into the water. Nothing falleth any longer into deep wells. Everything among them talketh. Nothing succeedeth any longer and accomplisheth itself. Everything cackleth. But who will still sit quietly on the nest and hatch eggs? Everything among them talketh. Everything is out-talked. And that which yesterday was still too hard for time itself, and its tooth, hangeth to-day, out-champed and out-chewed, from the mouths of the men of to-day. Everything among them talketh, everything is betrayed. 
and what was once called the secret and secrecy of profound souls belongeth to-day to the street trumpeters and other butterflies o oh, human hubbub thou wonderful thing thou noise in dark streets now art thou again behind me my greatest danger lieth behind me in indulging and pitying lay ever my greatest danger and all human hubbub wisheth to be indulged and tolerated with suppressed truths with fool's hand and befooled heart and rich in petty lies of pity thus have i ever lived among men disguised did i sit amongst them ready to misjudge myself that i might endure them and willingly saying to myself thou fool thou dost not know men one unlearneth men when one liveth amongst them there is too much foreground in all men what can far-seeing far-longing eyes do there and fool that i was when they misjudged me i indulged them on that account more than myself being habitually hard on myself and often even taking revenge on myself for the indulgence stung all over by poisonous flies and hollowed like the stone by many drops of wickedness thus did i sit among them and still said to myself innocent is everything petty of its pettiness especially did i find those who call themselves the good the most poisonous flies they sting in all innocence they lie in all innocence how could they be just toward me he who liveth amongst the good pity teacheth him to lie pity maketh stifling air for all free souls for the stupidity of the good is unfathomable to conceal myself and my riches that did i learn down there for every one did i still find poor in spirit it was the lie of my pity that i knew in every one that i saw and scented in every one what was enough of spirit for him and what was too much their stiff wise men i call them wise not stiff thus did i learn to slur over words the grave-diggers dig for themselves diseases under old rubbish rest bad vapors one should not stir up the marsh one should live on mountains with blessed nostrils do i again breathe mountain freedom freed at last is my nose from the smell of all human hubbub with sharp breezes tickled as with sparkling wine sneezeth my soul sneezeth and shouteth self-congratulatingly health to thee thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici 
This is an example of a class of writing which may be passed over too lightly by those whom poet-tasters have made distrustful of poetry. From first to last, it is extremely valuable as an autobiographical note. The inevitable superficiality of the rabble is contrasted with the peaceful and profound depths of the anchorite. Here we first get a direct hint concerning Nietzsche's fundamental passion. The main force behind all his new values and scathing criticisms of existing values. In verse 30, we are told that pity was his greatest danger. The broad altruism of the lawgiver, thinking over vast eras of time, was continually being pitted by Nietzsche in himself against that transient and meaner sympathy for the neighbor, which he, more perhaps than any of his contemporaries, had suffered from, but which he was certain involved enormous dangers not only for himself, but also to the next and subsequent generations. See Note B, where pity is mentioned among the degenerate virtues. Later in the book, we shall see how his profound compassion leads him into temptation, and how frantically he struggles against it. In verses 31 and 32, he tells us to what extent he had to modify himself, in order to be endured by his fellows whom he loved. See also verse 12 in Manly Prudence. Nietzsche's great love for his fellows, which he confesses in the prologue, and which is at the root of all his teaching, seems rather to elude the discerning powers of the average philanthropist and modern man. He cannot see the wood for the trees. A philanthropy that sacrifices the minority of the present day, for the majority constituting posterity, completely evades his mental grasp and Nietzsche's philosophy because it declares Christian values to be a danger to the future of our kind, is therefore shelved as brutal, cold, and hard. See note on chapter 36. Nietzsche tries to be all things to all men. He was sufficiently fond of his fellows for that. In the return home, he describes how he ultimately returns to loneliness in order to recover from the effects of his experiment. End of part three, chapter 53. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part 3, Chapter 54 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Three Evil Things. 1. In my dream, in my last morning dream, I stood today on a promontory. Beyond the world, I held a pair of scales and weighed the world. Alas, that the rosy dawn came too early to me. She glowed me awake, the jealous one. Jealous is she always of the glows of my morning dream. Measurable by him who hath time, weighable by a good weigher, Attainable by strong pinions, divinable by divine nutcrackers, thus did my dream find the world. My dream, a bold sailor, half ship, half hurricane, 
silent as the butterfly, impatient as the falcon. How had it the patience and leisure today for world-weighing? Did my wisdom perhaps speak secretly to it, my laughing wide-awake day wisdom, which mocketh at all infinite worlds? For it saith, Where force is, there becometh number the master, it hath more force. How confidently did my dream contemplate this finite world! Not new-fangledly, not old-fangledly, not timidly, not entreatingly, as if a big round apple presented itself to my hand. A ripe golden apple, with a coolly soft velvety skin. Thus did the world present itself unto me. As if a tree nodded unto me, a broad-branched, strong-willed tree, curved as a recline in a footstool for weary travellers. Thus did the world stand on my promontory. As if delicate hands carried a casket toward me, a casket open for the delectation of modest, adoring eyes. Thus did the world present itself before me to-day. Not riddle enough to scare human love from it, not solution enough to put to sleep human wisdom. A humanly good thing was the world to me to-day, of which such bad things are said. How I thank my morning dream that I thus at to-day's dawn weighed the world. As a humanly good thing did it come unto me this dream and heart-comforter, and that I may do the like by day, and imitate and copy its best, now will I put the three worst things on the scales, and weigh them humanly well. He who taught to bless taught also to curse. Where are the three best cursed things in the world? These will I put on the scales. Voluptuousness. Passion for power and selfishness. These three things have hitherto been best cursed, and have been in worst and falsest repute. These three things will I weigh humanly well. Well, here is my promontory, and there is the sea. It rolleth hither unto me, shaggily and fawnily, the old faithful hundred-headed dog-monster that I love. Well, here will I hold the scales over the weltering sea, and also a witness do I choose to look on, thee, the anchorite tree, thee, the strong-odored broad-arched tree that I love. On what bridge goeth the now to the hereafter? By what constraint doth the high stoop to the low? and what enjoineth even the highest still to grow upwards. Now stand the scales, poised and at rest. Three heavy questions have I thrown in. Three heavy answers carrieth the other scale. 2. Voluptuousness Unto all hair-shirted despisers of the body a sting and stake and cursed as the world by all backworldsmen. 
for it mocketh and befooleth all erring, misinferring teachers. Voluptuousness To the rabble, the slow fire at which it is burnt, to all wormy wood, to all stinking rags, the prepared heat and stew furnace. Voluptuousness To free hearts, a thing innocent and free, the garden happiness of the earth, all the future's thanks overflow to the present. Voluptuousness, only to the withered a sweet poison, to the lion willed, however, the great cordial, and the reverently saved wine of wines. Voluptuousness, the great symbolic happiness of a higher happiness and highest hope. For to many is marriage promised, and more than marriage. To many that are more unknown to each other than man and woman, and who hath fully understood how unknown to each other are man and woman. Voluptuousness. But I will have hedges around my thoughts, and even around my words, lest swine and libertine should break into my gardens. Passion for Power The glowing scourge of the hardest of the heart-hard, the cruel torture reserved for the cruelest themselves, the gloomy flame of living pyres. Passion for Power The wicked gadfly which is mounted on the vainest peoples, the scorner of all uncertain virtue which rideth on every horse and on every pride. Passion for power. The earthquake, which breaketh and upbreaketh all that is rotten and hollow. The rolling, rumbling, punitive demolisher of white sepulchres. The flashing, interrogative sign beside premature answers. Passion for power. Before whose glance man creepeth and croucheth and drudgeth, and becometh lower than the serpent and the swine, until at last great contempt crieth out of him. Passion for power. The terrible teacher of great contempt, which preacheth to their face to cities and empires, away with thee, until a voice crieth out of themselves, away with me. Passion for power, which, however, mounteth alluringly even to the pure and lonesome, and up to self-satisfied elevations glowing like a love that painteth purple felicities alluringly on earthly heavens. Passion for power. But who would call it passion, when the height longeth to stoop for power? Verily, nothing sick or diseased is there in such longing and descending that the lonesome height may not for ever remain lonesome and self-sufficing, that the mountains may come to the valleys and the winds of the heights to the plains. Oh, who could find the right prenomen and honoring name for such longing? Bestowing virtue, thus did Zarathustra once name the unnameable. And then it happened also, and verily it happened for the first time, that is word blessed selfishness 
the wholesome, healthy selfishness that springeth from the powerful soul. From the powerful soul, to which the high body appertaineth, the handsome, triumphing, refreshing body around which everything becometh a mirror, the pliant, persuasive body, the dancer whose symbol and epitome is the self-enjoying soul. Of such bodies and souls the self-enjoyment calleth itself virtue. With its words of good and bad doth such self-enjoyment shelter itself as with sacred groves. With the names of its happiness doth it banish from itself everything contemptible. Away from itself doth it banish everything cowardly. It saith, Bad, that is cowardly. Contemptible seem it to the ever-solicitous, the sighing, the complaining, and whoever pick up the most trifling advantage. It despiseth also all bittersweet wisdom. For verily, there is also wisdom that bloometh in the dark, a nightshade wisdom which ever sigheth, all is vain. Shy distrust is regarded by it as base, and every one who wanteth oaths instead of looks and hands, also all over distrustful wisdom, for such is the mode of cowardly souls. Baser still it regardeth the obsequious, doggish one, who immediately lieth on his back, the submissive one. And there is also wisdom that is submissive and doggish and pious and obsequious. Hateful to it altogether, and a loathing is he who will never defend himself. He who swalloweth down poisonous spittle and bad looks the all-too-patient one, the all-endurer, the all-satisfied one, for that is the mode of slaves. Whether they be servile before gods and divine spurnings, or before men and stupid human opinions, at all kinds of slaves doth it spit this blessed selfishness. Bad. Thus doth it call all that is spirit broken and sordidly servile, constrained, blinking eyes, depressed hearts, and the false submissive style which kisseth the broad, cowardly lips. And spurious wisdom, so doth it call all the wit that slaves and hoary-headed and weary ones affect, and especially all the cunning, spurious-witted, curious-witted foolishness of priests. The spurious wise, however, all the priests, the world-weary and those whose souls are of feminine and servile nature, oh, how hath their game all along abused selfishness! And precisely that was to be virtue and was to be called virtue, to abuse selfishness and selfless, so did they wish themselves with good reason, all those world-weary cowards and cross-spiders. But to all those cometh now the day, the change, 
the sword of judgment, the great noontide. Then shall many things be revealed. And he who proclaimeth the ego wholesome and holy, and selfishness blessed, verily he, the prognosticator, speaketh also what he knoweth. Behold, it cometh, it is nigh, the great noontide. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Nietzsche is here completely in his element. Three things hitherto best cursed and most calumniated on earth are brought forward to be weighed. Voluptuousness, thirst of power, and selfishness, the three forces in humanity which Christianity has done most to garble and besmirch, Nietzsche endeavors to reinstate in their former places of honor. Voluptuousness, or sensual pleasure, is a dangerous thing to discuss nowadays. If we mention it with favor, we may be regarded, however unjustly, as the advocate of savages, satyrs, and pure sensuality. If we condemn it, we either go over to the Puritans, or we join those who are wont to come to the table with no edge to their appetites, and who therefore grumble at all good fare. There can be no doubt that the value of healthy, innocent voluptuousness, like the value of health itself, must have been greatly discounted by all those who, resenting their inability to partake of this world's goods, cried like St. Paul, quote, I would that all men were even as I myself. End quote. Now, Nietzsche's philosophy might be called an attempt at giving back to healthy and normal men innocence and a clean conscience in their desires, not to applaud the vulgar sensualists who respond to every stimulus and whose passions are out of hand, not to tell the mean, selfish individual whose selfishness is a pollution, see aphorism 33 in Twilight of the Idols, that he is right, nor to assure the weak, the sick, and the crippled that the thirst of power which they gratify by exploiting the happier and healthier individuals is justified. But to save the clean, healthy man from the values of those around him, who look at everything through the mud that is their own bodies, to give him, and him alone, a clean conscience in his manhood, and the desires of his manhood, quote, Do I counsel you to slay your instincts? I counsel to innocence in your instincts. End quote. In verse 7 of the second paragraph, as in verse 1 of paragraph 19 in the Old and New Tables, Nietzsche gives us a reason for his occasional obscurity. See also verses 3 to 7 of Poets. As I have already pointed out, his philosophy is quite esoteric. It can serve no purpose with the ordinary, mediocre type of man. I, personally, can no longer have any doubt that Nietzsche's only object in that part of his philosophy where he bids his friends stand beyond good and evil with him was to save higher men, whose growth and scope might be limited by the too strict observance of modern values from foundering on the rocks of a compromise 
between their own genius and traditional conventions. The only possible way in which the great man can achieve greatness is by means of exceptional freedom, the freedom which assists him in experiencing himself. Verses 20 to 30 afford an excellent supplement to Nietzsche's description of the attitude of the noble type toward the slaves in aphorism 260 of the work Beyond Good and Evil. See also Note B. End of Part 3, Chapter 54, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part 3, Chapter 55 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Spirit of Gravity 1. My mouthpiece is of the people. Too coarsely and cordially do I talk for Angora rabbits. And still stranger soundeth my word unto all inkfish and pen-foxes. My hand is a fool's hand. Woe unto all tables and walls, and whatever hath room for fool's sketching, fool's scrawling. My foot is a horse-foot. Therewith do I trample and trot over stick and stone in the fields up and down, and am bedeviled with delight in all fast racing. My stomach is surely an eagle's stomach, for it prefereth lamb's flesh. Certainly it is a bird's stomach, nourished with innocent things and with few, ready and impatient to fly, to fly away. That is now my nature. Why should there not be something of bird nature therein? And especially that I am hostile to the spirit of gravity. That is bird nature. Verily, deadly hostile, supremely hostile, originally hostile. Oh, whither hath my hostility not flown and misflown? Thereof could I sing a song, and will sing it, though I be alone in an empty house and must sing it to mine own ears. Other singers are there, to be sure, to whom only the full house maketh the voice soft, the hand eloquent, the eye expressive, the heart wakeful. Those do I not resemble. 2. He who one day teacheth men to fly will have shifted all landmarks. To him will all landmarks themselves fly into the air. The earth will he christen anew as the light body. The ostrich runneth faster than the fastest horse, but it also thrusteth its head heavily into the heavy earth. Thus is it with the man who cannot yet fly. Heavily unto him are earth and life, and so willeth the spirit of gravity. But he who would become light and be a bird must love himself. Thus do I teach. Not, to be sure, with the love of the sick and infected, for with them stinketh even self-love. One must learn to love oneself. Thus do I teach, with a wholesome and healthy love that one may endure to be with oneself and not go roving about. Such 
roving about christeneth itself brotherly love with these words hath there hitherto been the best lying and dissembling and especially by those who have been burdensome to every one and verily it is no commandment for to-day and to-morrow to learn to love oneself rather is it of all arts the finest subtlest last and patientest for to its possessor is all possession well concealed and of all treasure-pits one's own is last excavated so causeth the spirit of gravity almost in the cradle are we apportioned with heavy words and worths good and evil so calleth itself this dowry for the sake of it we are forgiven for living and therefore suffereth one little children to come unto one to forbid them betimes to love themselves so causeth the spirit of gravity and we we bear loyally what is apportioned unto us on hard shoulders over rugged mountains and when we sweat then do people say unto us yea life is hard to bear but man himself only is hard to bear the reason thereof is that he carrieth too many extraneous things on his shoulders like the camel kneeleth he down and letteth himself be well laden especially the strong load-bearing man in whom reverence resideth too many extraneous heavy words and worths loadeth he upon himself then seemeth life to him a desert and verily many a thing also that is our own is hard to bear and many internal things in man are like the oyster repulsive and slippery and hard to grasp so that an elegant shell with elegant adornment must plead for them but this art also must one learn to have a shell and a fine appearance and sagacious blindness again it deceiveth about many things in man that many a shell is poor and pitiable and too much of a shell much concealed goodness and power is never dreamt of the choicest dainties find no tasters women know that the choicest of them a little fatter a little leaner oh how much fate is in so little man is difficult to discover and unto himself most difficult of all often lieth the spirit concerning the soul so causeth the spirit of gravity he however hath discovered himself who saith this is my good and evil therewith hath he silenced the mole and the dwarf who say good for all evil for all verily neither do i like those who call everything good and this world the best of all those do i call the all-satisfied all-satisfiedness which knoweth how to taste everything that is not the best taste i honor the refractory fastidious tongues and stomachs which have learned to say i and yea and nay to chew and digest everything however 
that is the genuine swine nature ever to say ya that hath only the ass learnt and those like it deep yellow and hot red so wanteth my taste it mixeth blood with all colours he however who whitewasheth his house betrayeth unto me a whitewashed soul with mummies some fall in love others with phantoms both alike hostile to all flesh and blood oh how repugnant are both to my taste for i love blood and there will i not reside and abide where every one spitteth and speweth that is now my taste rather would i live amongst thieves and perjurers nobody carrieth gold in his mouth still more repugnant unto me however are all the lickspittles and the most repugnant animal of man that i found did i christen parasite it would not love and would yet live by love unhappy do i call all those who have only one choice either to become evil beasts or evil beast tamers amongst such would i not build my tabernacle unhappy do i also call those who have ever to wait they are repugnant to my taste all the toll-gatherers and traders and kings and other land-keepers and shopkeepers verily i learned waiting also and thoroughly so but only waiting for myself and above all did i learn standing and walking and running and leaping and climbing and dancing this however is my teaching he who wisheth one day to fly must first learn standing and walking and running and climbing and dancing one doth not fly into flying with rope ladders learned i to reach many a window with nimble legs did i climb high masts to sit on high masts of perception seemed to me no small bliss to flicker like small flames on high masts a small light certainly but a great comfort to cast away sailors and shipwrecked ones by diverse ways and wendings did i arrive at my truth not by one ladder did i mount to the height where mine eye roveth into my remoteness and unwillingly only did i ask my way that was always counter to my taste rather did i question and test the ways themselves a testing and a questioning hath been all my travelling and verily one must also learn to answer such questioning that however is my taste neither a good nor a bad taste but my taste of which i have no longer either shame or secrecy this is now my way where is yours thus did i answer those who asked me the way for the way it doth not exist thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici see note on chapter forty six 
in part two of this discourse we meet with a doctrine not touched upon hitherto save indirectly i refer to the doctrine of self-love we should try to understand this perfectly before proceeding for it is precisely views of this sort which after having been cut out of the original context are repeated far and wide as internal evidence proving the general unsoundness of nietzsche's philosophy already in the last of the thoughts out of season nietzsche speaks as follows about modern men quote, these modern creatures wish rather to be hunted down wounded and torn to shreds than to live alone with themselves in solitary calm alone with oneself this thought terrifies the modern soul it is his one anxiety his one ghastly fear End quote. english edition page one forty one in his feverish scurry to find entertainment and diversion whether in a novel a newspaper or a play the modern man condemns his own age utterly for he shows that in his heart of hearts he despises himself one cannot change a condition of this sort in a day to become endurable to oneself an inner transformation is necessary too long have we lost ourselves in our friends and entertainments to be able to find ourselves so soon at another's bidding quote, and verily it is no commandment for to-day and to-morrow to learn to love oneself rather is it of all arts the finest subtlest last and patientest End quote. in the last verse nietzsche challenges us to show that our way is the right way in his teaching he does not coerce us nor does he over persuade he simply says quote, i am a law only for mine own i am not a law for all this is now my way where is yours End, quote. End of part three chapter fifty five recording by john van stan savannah georgia part three first section of chapter fifty six of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this librivox recording is in the public domain old and new tables one here do i sit and wait old broken tables around me and also new half-written tables when cometh mine hour the hour of my descent of my down-going for once more will i go unto men for that hour do i now wait for first must the signs come unto me that it is mine hour namely the laughing lion with the flock of doves meanwhile do i talk to myself as one who hath time no one telleth me anything new so i tell myself mine own story two when i came unto men then found i them resting on an old infatuation all of them thought they had long known what was good and bad for men an old wearisome business seemed to them all discourse about virtue and he who wished to sleep well spake of good and bad 
ere retiring to rest. This somnolence did I disturb when I taught that no one yet knoweth what is good and bad, unless it be the creating one. It is he, however, who createth man's goal, and giveth to the earth its meaning and its future. He only affecteth it that aught is good or bad. And I bade them upset their old academic chairs, and wherever that old infatuation had sat, I bade them laugh at their great moralists, their saints, their poets, and their saviors. At their gloomy sages did I bid them laugh, and whoever had sat admonishing as a black scarecrow on the tree of life. On their great grave highway did I seat myself, and even beside the carrion and vultures, and I laughed at all their bygone and its mellow decaying glory. Verily, like penitential preachers and fools did I cry wrath and shame on all their greatness and smallness. Oh, that their best is so very small! Oh, that their worst is so very small! Thus did I laugh. Thus did my wise longing, born in the mountains, cry and laugh in me. A wild wisdom, verily, my great pinion-rustling longing. And oft did it carry me off and up and away and in the midst of laughter. Then flew I quivering like an arrow with sun-intoxicated rapture. Out into distant futures, which no dream hath yet seen, into warmer souths than ever sculptor conceived, where gods in their dancing are ashamed of all clothes, that I may speak in parables and halt and stammer like the poets. And verily I am ashamed that I have still to be a poet, where all becoming seemed to me dancing of gods and wantoning of gods, and the world unloosed and unbridled and fleeing back to itself as an eternal self-fleeing and reseeking of one another of many gods, as the blessed self-contradicting, recommuning, and refraternizing with one another of many gods, where all time seemed to me a blessed mockery of moments, where necessity was freedom itself, which played happily with the goad of freedom, where I also found again mine old devil and arch-enemy, the spirit of gravity, and all that it created—constraint, law, necessity, and consequence, and purpose, and will, and good, and evil—for must there not be that which is danced over, danced beyond? Must there not, for the sake of the nimble, the nimblest, be moles and clumsy dwarfs. Three. There was it also where I picked up from the path of the word Superman, and that man is something that must be surpassed. That man is a bridge and not a goal, rejoicing over his noontides and evenings as advances to new rosy dawns. The Zarathustra word of the great noontide and whatever else I have hung up over men like purple evening afterglows. 
verily also new stars did i make them see along with new nights and over cloud and day and night did i spread out laughter like a gay-colored canopy i taught them all my poetization and aspiration to compose and collect into unity what is fragment in man and riddle and fearful chance as composer riddle reader and redeemer of chance did i teach them to create the future and all that hath been to redeem by creating the past of man to redeem and every it was to transform until the will saith but so did i will it so shall i will it this did i call redemption this alone taught i them to call redemption now do i await my redemption that i may go unto them for the last time for once more i will go unto men amongst them will my son set in dying will i give them my choicest gift from the sun did i learn this when it goeth down the exuberant one gold doth it then pour into the sea out of inexhaustible riches so that the poorest fisherman roweth even with golden oars for this did i once see and did not tire of weeping and beholding it like the sun will also zarathustra go down now sitteth he here and waiteth old broken tables around him and also new tables half written four behold here is a new table but where are my brethren who will carry it with me to the valley and into the hearts of flesh thus demandeth my great love to the remotest ones be not considerate of thy neighbor man is something that must be surpassed there are many diverse ways and modes of surpassing see thou thereto but only a buffoon thinketh man can also be overleapt surpass thyself even in thy neighbor and the right which thou canst seize upon shalt thou not allow to be given thee what thou doest can no one do to thee again lo there is no requital he who cannot command himself shall obey and many a one can command himself, but still sorely lacketh self-obedience. 5. Thus wisheth the type of noble souls. They desire to have nothing gratuitously, least of all life. He who is of the populace wisheth to live gratuitously. We others, however, to whom life hath given itself, we are ever considering what we can best give in return and verily it is a noble dictum which saith what life promiseth us that promise we will keep to life one should not wish to enjoy where one doth not contribute to the enjoyment and one should not wish to enjoy for enjoyment and innocence are the most bashful things. 
neither like to be sought for. One should have them, but one should rather seek for guilt and pain. 6. O oh, my brethren, he who is a firstling is ever sacrificed. Now, however, are we firstlings? We all bleed on secret sacrificial altars. We all burn and broil in honor of ancient idols. Our best is still young. This exciteth old palates. Our flesh is tender. Our skin is only lamb's skin. How could we not excite old, idle priests? In ourselves dwelleth he still, the old, idle priest, who broileth our best for his banquet. Ah, my brethren, how could firstlings fail to be sacrifices? But so wisheth our type, and I love those who do not wish to preserve themselves. The down-going ones do I love with mine entire love, for they go beyond. 7. To be true, that can few be, and he who can will not. Least of all, however, can the good be true. Oh, those good ones! Good men never speak the truth. For the spirit thus to be good is a malady. They yield, those good ones. They submit themselves. Their heart repeateth, their soul obeyeth. He, however, who obeyeth, doth not listen to himself. All that is called evil by the good must come together in order that one truth may be born. O oh, my brethren! Are ye also evil enough for this truth? The daring venture, the prolonged distrust, the cruel nay, the tedium, the cutting into the quick, how seldom do these come together? Out of such seed, however, is truth produced. Beside the bad conscience hath hitherto grown up all knowledge. Break up, break up, ye discerning ones, the old tables. 8. When the water hath planks, when gangways and railings o'erspan the stream, verily he is not believed who then saith, All is in flux. But even the simpletons contradict him. What? say the simpletons. All in flux. The planks and railings are still over the stream. Over the stream all is stable. All the values of things, the bridges and bearings, all good and evil, these are all stable. Cometh, however, the hard winter, the stream-tamer. Then learn even the wittiest distrust, and verily not only the simpletons then say, Should not everything stand still? Fundamentally standeth everything still. That is an appropriate winter doctrine. Good cheer for an unproductive period. A great comfort for winter sleepers and fireside loungers.
fundamentally standeth everything still. But contrary thereto preacheth the thawing wind. The thawing wind, a bullock, which is no ploughing bullock, a furious bullock, a destroyer, which with angry horns breaketh the ice. The ice, however, breaketh gangways. Oh, my brethren, is not everything at present in flux? Have not all railings and gangways fallen into the water? Who would still hold on to good and evil? Woe to us! Hail to us! The thawing wind bloweth! Thus preach, my brethren, through all the streets. 9. There is an old illusion. It is called good and evil. Around soothsayers and astrologers hath hitherto revolved the orbit of this illusion. Once did one believe in soothsayers and astrologers, and therefore did one believe, Everything is fate, thou shalt for thou must. Then again did one distrust all soothsayers and astrologers, and therefore did one believe, Everything is freedom, thou canst, for thou willest. O oh, my brethren, concerning the stars and the future there hath hitherto been only illusion, and not knowledge. And therefore, concerning good and evil there hath hitherto been only illusion, and not knowledge. 10. Thou shalt not rob, thou shalt not slay. Such precepts were once called holy. Before them did one bow the knee and the head and take off one's shoes. But I ask you, where have there ever been better robbers and slayers in the world than such holy precepts? Is there not even in all life robbing and slaying? And for such precepts to be called holy, was not truth itself thereby slain? Or was it a sermon of death that called holy what contradicted and dissuaded from life? Oh, my brethren, break up, break up for me the old tables. 11. It is my sympathy with all the past that I see it is abandoned. Abandoned to the favor, the spirit, and the madness of every generation that cometh, and reinterpreteth all that hath been as its bridge. A great potentate might arise, an artful prodigy, who with approval and disapproval could strain and constrain all the past, until it became for him a bridge, a harbinger, a herald, and a cock-crowing. This, however, is the other danger, and mine other sympathy. He who is of the populace, his thoughts go back to his grandfather. With his grandfather, however, doth time cease. Thus is all the past abandoned. For it might some day happen for the populace to become master. 
and drown all time in shallow waters. Therefore, O oh my brethren, a new nobility is needed, which shall be the adversary of all populous and potentate rule, and shall inscribe anew the word noble on new tables. For many noble ones are needed, and many kinds of noble ones, for a new nobility. Or, as I once said in parable, that is just divinity, that there are gods but no god. 12. O oh, my brethren, I consecrate you and point you to a new nobility. Ye shall become procreators and cultivators and sowers of the future. Verily, not to a nobility which she could purchase like traders with traders' gold, for little worth is all that hath its price. Let it not be your honor henceforth whence ye come, but whither ye go. Your will and your feet which seek to surpass you, let these be your new honor. Verily, not that ye have served a prince, of what account are princes now? nor that ye have become a bulwark to that which standeth, that it may stand more firmly. Not that your family have become courtly at courts, and that ye have learned, gay-colored like the flamingo, to stand long hours in shallow pools. For ability to stand is a merit in courtiers, and all courtiers believe that unto blessedness after death pertaineth permission to sit nor even that a spirit called holy led your forefathers into promised lands which i do not praise for where the worst of all trees grew the cross in that land there is nothing to praise and verily wherever this holy spirit led its knights always in such campaigns did goats and geese and ryeheads and guyheads run foremost Oh, my brethren, not backward shall your nobility gaze, but outward. Exiles shall ye be from all fatherlands and forefatherlands. Your children's land shall ye love. Let this love be your new nobility, the undiscovered in the remotest seas. For it do I bid your sails search and search. Unto your children shall ye make amends for being the children of your fathers. All the past shall ye thus redeem. This new table do I place over you. 13. Why should one live? All is vain. To live, that is to thrash straw. To live, that is to burn oneself and yet not get warm. Such ancient babbling still passeth for wisdom. Because it is old, however, and smelleth mustily, therefore is it the more honored. Even mold ennobleth. Children might thus speak. They shun the fire because it hath burnt them. There is much childishness in the old books of wisdom. And he who ever thrasheth straw 
Why should he be allowed to rail at thrashing? Such a fool one would have to muzzle. Such persons sit down to the table and bring nothing with them, not even hunger, and then do they rail. All is vain. But to eat and drink well, my brethren, is verily no vain art. Break up, break up for me the tables of the never-joyous ones. 14. To the clean are all things clean. Thus say the people. I, however, say unto you, To the swine all things become swinish. Therefore preach the visionaries and bowed heads, Whose hearts are also bowed down. The world itself is a filthy monster. For these are all unclean spirits, Especially those, however, who have no peace or rest, Unless they see the world from the backside, the backworldsman. To those, do I say it to the face, although it sound unpleasantly, the world resembleth man in that it hath a backside. So much is true. There is in the world much filth. So much is true. But the world itself is not therefore a filthy monster. There is wisdom in the fact that much in the world smelleth badly. Loathing itself createth wings and fountain-divining powers. In the best there is still something to loathe, and the best is still something that must be surpassed. Oh, my brethren, there is much wisdom in the fact that much filth is in the world." 15. Such sayings did I hear pious backworldsmen speak to their consciences, and verily without wickedness or guile, although there is nothing more guileful in the world or more wicked. Let the world be as it is, raise not a finger against it. Let whoever will choke and stab and skin and scrape the people, raise not a finger against it thereby will they learn to renounce the world and thine own reason this shalt thou thyself stifle and choke for it is a reason of this world thereby wilt thou learn thyself to renounce the world shatter shatter o oh my brethren those old tables of the pious tatter the maxims of the world maligners 16. He who learneth much, unlearneth all violent cravings. That do people now whisper to one another in all the dark lanes. Wisdom wearieth, nothing is worth while, thou shalt not crave. This new table found I hanging even in the public markets. Break up for me, O oh my brethren. Break up also that new table. The weary of the world put it up, and the preachers of death and the jailer. For lo, it is also a sermon for slavery. Because they learned badly and not the best, and everything too early and everything too fast. Because they ate badly. From thence hath resulted their ruined stomach. 
for a ruined stomach is their spirit. It persuadeth to death. For verily, my brethren, the spirit is a stomach. Life is a well of delight. But to him in whom the ruined stomach speaketh, the father of affliction, all fountains are poisoned. To discern, that is delight to the lion-willed. But he who hath become weary is himself merely willed. With him play all the waves, and such is always the nature of weak men. They lose themselves on their way, and at last asketh their weariness, Why did we ever go on the way? All is indifferent. To them soundeth it pleasant to have preached in their ears, Nothing is worth while, ye shall not will. That, however, is a sermon for slavery. O oh, my brethren, a fresh blustering wind cometh Zarathustra unto all way-weary ones. Many noses will he yet make sneeze. Even through walls bloweth my free breath, and in into prisons and imprisoned spirits. Willing emancipateth, for willing is creating. So do I teach, and only for creating shall ye learn. And also... The learning shall ye learn only from me the learning well. He who hath ears, let him hear. 17. There standeth the boat. Tither goeth it over, perhaps, into vast nothingness. But who willeth to enter into this, perhaps? None of you want to enter into the death-boat? How should ye then be world-weary ones? World-weary ones, and have not even withdrawn from the earth. Eager did I ever find you for the earth, amorous still of your own earth-weariness. Not in vain doth your lip hang down. A small worldly wish still sitteth thereon. And in your eye floateth there not a cloudlet of unforgotten earthly bliss? There are on the earth many good inventions, some useful, some pleasant. For their sake is the earth to be loved. And many such good inventions are there, that they are like woman's breasts, useful at the same time and pleasant. Ye world-weary ones, however, ye earth-idlers, you shall one beat with stripes, with stripes shall one again make you sprightly limbs. For if ye be not invalids, or decrepit creatures, of whom the earth is weary, then are ye sly sloths, or dainty sneaking pleasure-cats. And if ye will not again run gaily, then shall ye pass away. To the incurable shall one not seek to be a physician, Thus teacheth Zarathustra, so shall ye pass away. But more courage is needed to make an end than to make a new verse. That do all physicians and poets know well. 18. O oh, my brethren, 
There are tables which weariness framed, and tables which slothfulness framed, corrupt slothfulness. Although they speak similarly, they want to be heard differently. See this languishing one. Only a span breadth is he from his goal, but from weariness hath he lain down obstinately in the dust, this brave one. From weariness yawneth he at the path, at the earth, at the goal, and at himself. Not a step further will he go, this brave one. Now gloweth the sun upon him, and the dogs lick at his sweat, but he lieth there in his obstinacy, and prefereth to languish. A span breadth from his goal, to languish. Verily, ye will have to drag him into his heaven by the hair of his head, this hero. Better still that ye let him lie where he hath lain down, that sleep may come unto him the comforter with cooling patter rain. Let him lie, until of his own accord he awakeneth, until of his own accord he repudiateth all weariness and what weariness hath taught through him. Only, my brethren, see that ye scare the dogs away from him, the idle skulkers and all the swarming vermin, all the swarming vermin of the cultured, that feast on the sweat of every hero. 19. I form circles around me and holy boundaries. Ever fewer ascend with me, ever higher mountains. I build a mountain range out of ever holier mountains. But wherever ye would ascend with me, O my brethren, take care lest a parasite ascend with you. A parasite. That is, a reptile, a creeping, cringing reptile that trieth to fatten on your infirm and sore places. And this is its art. It divineth where ascending souls are weary, in your trouble and dejection, in your sensitive modesty, doth it build its loathsome nest. Where the strong are weak, where the noble are all too gentle, there buildeth it its loathsome nest. The parasite liveth where the great have small sore places. What is the highest of all species of being, and what is the lowest? The parasite is the lowest species. He, however, who is of the highest species feedeth most parasites. For the soul which hath the longest latter, and can go deepest down, how could there fail to be most parasites upon it? The most comprehensive soul, which can run and stray and rove furthest in itself, the most necessary soul which out of joy flingeth itself into chance, the soul in being, which plungeth into becoming, the possessing soul which seeketh to attain desire and longing, the soul fleeing from itself, which overtaketh itself in the widest circuit, the wisest soul unto which folly speaketh most sweetly, the soul most self-loving, in which all things have their current and countercurrent, 
their ebb and their flow. Oh, how could the loftiest soul fail to have the worst parasites? Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Paragraph 2 Nietzsche himself declares this to be the most decisive portion of the whole of Thus Spake Zarathustra. It is a sort of epitome of his leading doctrines. In verse 12 of the second paragraph, we learn how he himself would fain have abandoned the poetical method of expression, had he not known only too well that the only chance a new doctrine has of surviving, nowadays, depends upon its being given to the world in some kind of art form. Just as prophets, centuries ago, often had to have recourse to the mask of madness in order to mitigate the hatred of those who did not and could not see as they did, so today the struggle for existence among opinions and values is so great that an art form is practically the only garb in which a new philosophy can dare to introduce itself to us. Paragraphs 3 and 4 Many of the paragraphs will be found to be merely reminiscent of former discourses. For instance, paragraph 3 recalls redemption. The last verse of paragraph 4 is important. Freedom, which, as I have pointed out before, Nietzsche considered a dangerous acquisition in inexperienced or unworthy hands, here receives its death-blow as a general desideratum. In the first part, we read under the way of the creating one that freedom as an end in itself does not concern zarathustra at all he says there quote, free from what what doth that matter to zarathustra clearly however shall thine eye answer me free for what End quote. and in the bedwarfing virtue quote, Ah, that she understood my word. Do ever what she will, but first be such as can will. End quote. Paragraph 5. Here we have a description of the kind of altruism Nietzsche exacted from higher men. It is really a comment upon the bestowing virtue. See note on chapter 22. Paragraph 6. This refers, of course, to the reception pioneers of Nietzsche's stamp meet with at the hands of their contemporaries. Paragraph 8. Nietzsche teaches that nothing is stable, not even values, not even the concepts good and evil. He likens life unto a stream, but footbridges and railings span the stream and they seem to stand firm. Many will be reminded of good and evil when they look upon these structures, for thus these same values stand over the stream of life, and life flows on beneath them and leaves them standing. When, however, winter comes and the stream gets frozen, many inquire, quote, Should not everything stand still? Fundamentally everything standeth still. End quote. But soon the spring cometh, and with it the thaw wind. It breaks the ice, and the ice breaks down the footbridges and railings, whereupon everything is swept away. This state of affairs, according to Nietzsche, 
has now been reached. Quote, oh, my brethren, is not everything at present in flux? Have not all railings and footbridges fallen into the water? Who would still hold on to good and evil? End quote. Paragraph 9. This is complementary to the first three verses of paragraph 2. Paragraph 10. So far, this is perhaps the most important paragraph. It is a protest against reading a moral order of things in life. Quote, life is something essentially immoral. End quote. Nietzsche tells us in the introduction to the birth of tragedy. Even to call life activity, or to define it further as, quote, the continuous adjustment of internal relations to external relations, end quote, as Spencer has it, Nietzsche characterizes as a democratic idiosyncrasy. He says to define it in this way, quote, is to mistake the true nature and function of life, which is will to power. Life is essentially appropriation, injury, conquest of the strange and weak, suppression, severity, obtrusion of its own forms, incorporation, and at least, putting it mildest, exploitation. End quote. Adaptation is merely a secondary activity, a mere reactivity. See note on chapter 57. Paragraphs 11 and 12. These deal with Nietzsche's principle of the desirability of rearing a select race. The biological and historical grounds for his insistence upon this principle are, of course, manifold. Gobineau, in his great work, L'Engalité de Ras Humaine, lays strong emphasis upon the evils which arise from promiscuous and intersocial marriages. He alone would suffice to carry Nietzsche's point against all those who are opposed to the other conditions, to the conditions which would have saved Rome, which have maintained the strength of the Jewish race, and which are strictly maintained by every breeder of animals throughout the world. Darwin, in his remarks relative to the degeneration of cultivated types of animals, through the action of promiscuous breeding, brings Gobineau's support from the realm of biology. The last two verses of paragraph 12 were discussed in the notes on chapters 36 and 53. Paragraph 13. This, like the first part of The Soothsayer, is obviously a reference to the Schopenhauerian pessimism. Paragraphs 14, 15, 16, and 17. These are supplementary to the discourse Backworldsmen. Paragraph 18. We must be careful to separate this paragraph in sense from the previous four paragraphs. Nietzsche is still dealing with pessimism here, but it is the pessimism of the hero, the man most susceptible of all to desperate views of life, owing to the obstacles that are arrayed against him in a world where men of his kind are very rare and are continually being sacrificed. It was to save this man that Nietzsche wrote, Heroism foiled, thwarted, and wrecked, hoping and fighting until the last, is at length overtaken by despair and renounces all struggle for sleep. 
this is not the natural or constitutional pessimism which proceeds from an unhealthy body the dyspeptic's lack of appetite it is rather the desperation of the netted lion that ultimately stops all movement because the more it moves the more involved it becomes end of part three section one of chapter fifty six recording by john van stan savannah georgia everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars limited time only price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer single item at regular price ba da ba ba ba